A child is born into the world. The poor mother is greatly distressed to learn that the little stranger is a daughter, and the neighbours turn their noses in all directions to manifest their disgust and indignation at the occurrence of such a phenomenon. It's not easy to determine when the childhood of a Hindu girl ends and married life begins. To employ her in housekeeping and kindred occupations is thought to be the only means of keeping her out of mischief. A widow is called an inauspicious thing. Her life then, void of all hope, empty of every pleasure and social advantage, becomes intolerable, a curse to herself and to society at large. She, the loving mother of the nation, the devoted wife, the tender sister and affectionate daughter, is never for independence and is as impure as falsehood itself. What you've just heard, dear listeners, isn't from misogynistic writings. These quotes were taken from a piece written in 1887 by India's first female social reformer. Now you may ask, why did she say all of this? How can you call her a reformer? Are you completely mad? Well, I can answer the last question with relative ease. Well, she didn't write this to appease the male population and admit that women are actually barking mad. She did it to point out the harsh treatment women received at every stage of their lives, from birth to death. Unfortunately, gloominess clouds over today's episodes, so I'm giving fair warning to listeners now that we do tackle some dark topics like child marriage and abuse, so if you'd like to skip over it, not to worry. I'll be there with a verbal red flag reminding you. Having said that, it's not dark the whole way through, because today we move through the valleys of Maharashtra, which is today the second most populated state in India, a state full to the brim with UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So let them boast their rich Marathi culture. I'll just sit here and say Suno Sunava, which is a fancy foreign way of demanding that you listen. Then again, I could just ask Dr. Padma Anagol to help me answer the question, who should be on the rupee? Let's ponder on the polymath of India with the power of Besa. Bows and curtsies to you, history fiends. This is the power of Besa. I'll just let the image sink in a little bit longer. Welcome to episode 3, the Saraswati of the British Raj, India's first female social reformer. And leading us by the hand in the content-heavy episodes is Dr. Padma Anagol. So how are you, Padma? I'm very well, thank you, Serena. Still surviving COVID? Yes. (laughs) I haven't been out. (laughs) I haven't been out of the house for for six months, (laughs) almost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at least we have history to keep us company during COVID. So your chosen figure to be on the rupee is Pandita Ramabai. And to be honest, it was hard to even come up with a name for this episode because there's just so many labels that she embodies. You know, she's a a social reformer, she's a liberal, she's a modern... Well, she's probably one of the first um, modern Indian women for her time. So I'm not going to read out uh, the list of everything that she's done, but I will say that she has a pretty impressive resume. You know, and it's interesting, she's someone I've never come across, you know, despite her fame nationally and internationally. 
but we'll get to that later. Um, but for now, I actually wanted to start off by providing some context for you guys. So, so Pandita Ramabai was born into a high caste family, so the, she, was, she was a Brahmin. And, and I wanted to know, what were the experiences of Brahmin women like in this period? Because there's, I find there's quite a bit of historiography concerning low castes and their experience, but not so much of Brahmin, and especially Brahmin women. And, I, and through my research, I found that high caste women actually had more severe constraints than the lower castes. But would this have been because... Um, the higher castes held hegemony in society? Um, <clears throat> as a historian, I would say that, um, yes, Brahmins ruled, but their, their role was much like the, you know, the Catholic Church in medieval Europe, um, that, you know, they had the intellectual right to rule because of their knowledge and monopoly of the Sanskrit language and all the texts were written in Sanskrit. But that doesn't mean the other castes were not powerful. Uh, there was the caste called Kshatriyas or the royal, um, you know, the, the monarchs, you know, Hindu rulers. They often came from the Kshatriya caste and they exercised power through wealth and through political power, okay? Which is interesting. So you're saying that Brahmins weren't the only weren't the only groups to hold power and even other castes or groups within the upper caste held power via other means. I guess the other intriguing thing about this is how we go about explaining these old traditions such as sati, um, which became a kind of nationwide problem in India at the time. But how did it get to the stage where, where these practices became uh, nationwide problems? What has happened in the past is in Indian society, the lower caste mimic the upper caste. And in mimicking, they've always borrowed the worst customs that have related to women usually. So for example, sati was only an upper caste norm, but it soon spread to the others. Child marriage likewise. The ban and widow remarriage was purely meant for Brahmins. But very soon, all other castes started to mimic them. Yeah, but why do essentially a complete 180 of cultural practices carried out by these by these lower castes? They do that because that is their only way of rising in the social status and rankings. So in order to convince a Brahmin that they're as good as them, they'll adopt a vegetarian diet. They will start oppressing them even. They will bang them up in the home. They'll practice sati. They, they ban widow remarriage. To show the upper caste that, look, we are, we are taking some of your customs. So treat us with the same regard. You see. Yeah. So these were the times that Pandit, Pandita Ramabai was witnessing. Although her own life was not that bad at all. Because her father was a very enlightened priest for a royal family. And he educated her mother and her as well. Yeah. Because yeah. wasn't it, um, she was inspired by her father and to some extent her mother as well, because she wrote a piece called A Testimony in 1907. And she said that although they adhered to the rules of religion, he didn't agree with the, the lesser treatment of 
the shruddas or, or the lower castes mm-hmm. and he actually called out members of the hindu clergy for for treating them than lesser than than they were mm-hmm. you know not only that he's part of the clergy but he spoke up against it as well yeah, yeah he was unique but then you see he very soon was driven off <laughs> because okay. nobody wanted um, um, nobody wanted reforming priests <laughs> mm. But then both her parents die in the Great Famine in 1876, leaving uh, Pandita and her younger brother. And I think she was 16? Yes. She and her brother walked all the way to Calcutta on a pilgrimage. And it was in Calcutta that her fame started to, you know, she... People came to know about her Sanskrit learning. You see these, uh, Serena, the unique thing about her was we what we could now call a retentive mind or a photographic memory. She had a photographic memory. So by the time she was six years old, she had 12,000 religious verses in her head. Just by listening to her father. So, you know, that kind of, obviously, that kind of mastery would attract the attention of people. And, and uh, in an open competition with uh, male Sanskrit priests in Calcutta, in a public debate, she so impressed them that she won the competition and she also won the title of Saraswati. So often she's called Pandita Rama by Saraswati. Saraswati is the goddess of learning. Because was it, was it common for women to know Sanskrit at the time or was that another reason why she was quite unique because she's from you see it was her how should i say um it was her father her father was a priest to the royal court of the peshwas and and he taught her okay otherwise a woman is not allowed to learn because right education you know a woman was you see, they all there are so many stereotypes. They said that if a woman um, started to um, read the Vedas or the Sanskrit literature, uh, she would become a widow very soon because by that very act, she would swallow her husband. That was the word they used, swallow the husband. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, but okay. <laughs> 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 That's a very interesting. It's a very clever ploy, I think, uh, by men to stop. Yeah. You know, I was also thinking about um, Bandita Ramabai's journey on the religious path because you know, because she was the daughter of a priest. She was deeply interested in uh, questions that relate to theology mm. and you know philosophy. Yeah. And she's, she writes in her testimony in the 1907 uh, testimony book, she says that she was she had begun to be very dissatisfied Hindu, with Hinduism. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, as a system of thought, uh, both in, you know, in its abstract ideas as well as in, in practice. She said Hinduism, she said, was not at all satisfactory. So we know she converted to Christianity around 1883. But I was wondering, what were the ideological tensions between uh, Hinduism and Christianity? Because I think the first train of thought about uh, if if you said during this period an Indian converted to Christianity, then it would be seen in in a negative light because it's the idea that uh, the population will view her negatively because because a, a spell has been woven on her and suddenly she's uh, she's a colonialist and 
the definition of Christianity suddenly falls under the colonialism bubble, but we should be examining it under a different light. I mean, Bandita Ramabai obviously converted to Christianity out of all the different religions in India, you know, for a reason. And this kind of reminds me of uh, when Dr. Ambedkar was essentially trying to figure out the same thing. So there's a reason why these people weren't satisfied with Hinduism and they um, branched off to different theologies? I would say that, well, the 19th century is also heralded as a social reform period. Right. All religions came under serious questioning. Mm. Not just Hinduism. You know, um, you see all over India, even uh, Islam, Indian, Indian Islam came under a severe questioning. Okay. Uh, and there were lots of Muslim reformers as well. Uh, I think... I think the biggest uh, fundamental tension in terms of creed or dogma between the two great world religions, Mm -hmm. that is Hinduism and Christianity, was the idea of monotheism or polytheism. Is there a question of one universal God or many? That was one fundamental issue. Um, Then there was also the system of ethics and morality. And this was fraught and fought out by many male intellectuals in the 19th century. But for Pandita Ramabai, I think, she was not really interested just in the abstract ideas of religion for its own sake, although she was a scholar of Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. And she could hold her own in any learned discussion on any theological merits of any religion. Okay. Yeah. But she wanted to know some things about Hinduism. What does Hinduism yeah. say about prostitutes? What does Hinduism say about women? Yeah. You know, what does Hinduism say about the virtue of compassion? Is compassion a virtue in Hinduism? What about salvation? Is salvation granted to shudras and to women? No. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it was the template of morality and ethics that she was questioning Hinduism. Mm. That's why she her dissatisfaction was growing. Because she found Hinduism wanting in every aspect. Mm. You know, the more she dug, the less uh, comfort, she says, she found. Psychological and spiritual comfort. Yeah. So, and then the flip side was Christianity. And she often found this, she quotes it very often, this famous verse from the Bible, that in Mm. God there is no male or female. You know? In God, there is no male or female. A God that included everyone. Now we would consider that as political correctness in religion. (laughs) Uh, So I would say that, you know, the reason she was dissatisfied with Hinduism was that it created a caste system that divided man against man, man against woman. And that, you know, and then she also had uh, questioned the abstract idea called Maya in Hinduism. Maya is illusion. And she related that to India's degeneration in the medieval times. Mm -hmm. And she said that if India is degenerated, it is because Hinduism has has made them passive. You know? And they they no longer question um, anything. You know, they, they, they read these scriptures which have anyway been corrupted over the centuries. It's not even the original scriptures. Yeah. Um, and, and then they swallow, swallow it lock, stock and barrel. And she said, this isn't going to satisfy me. You know, mm-hmm. I need something more. So it was a questioning of Hinduism on very um, 
solid ground of the template of morality and ethics that she didn't like. You know? yeah. She okay. wanted a highly moral um, and ethical religion which mm. grant everybody equality, you know, yeah. uh, rather yeah. than say you are not equal, some are more equal than you are. You yeah. know? And interestingly, um, Bandi Dharamabai actually considered uh, Brahmoism before she converted to Christianity. And I was quite confused at first because I uh, I assumed that Brahmoism was just a branch of Hinduism. But actually, the Brahmo Samaj um, clearly states, you can check their website, they clearly state that they're completely separate from Hinduism. And they do have some fundamental differences. So, for example, they're monotheistic. I suppose that's not really the main point of um, why Brahmoism stood out to Pandita Ramabai. Um, and it made sense for her to consider it because because it was such a widespreading movement in the 19th century and um, it arguably ignited the Bengali Renaissance movement. So why did she change her mind? What was it about Brahmoism that didn't appeal to her principles? By the way, this might seem like a random point, but I promise there's a reason behind it. The reason she had an issue with the Brahmo religion is that it was not a very definite one, she says. Uh, so I'm reading this out for you now. I was mm -hmm. desperately in need of some religion. The Hindu religion held no hope for me. The Brahmo religion was not a very definite one, for it is nothing but what man, man makes for himself. He chooses and gathers whatever seems good to him from all the religions known to him. And then he goes off and prepares a sort of religion for his own use. This could not and did not satisfy me. And, and well, it is right. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because... What I think she's trying to say, in other words, is that as an intellectual, she needed a well-thought-through system of philosophy and beliefs which had a firm anchor in ethics and morality. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what she needed. Not a diffuse pot of thoughts, which is what Brahmoism was offering her. Right. So for someone like her, she was a visionary. She, you know, she probably had an idea of, of her own greatness you know, and what she was going to achieve in the future. So as a future leader, I think she needed to anchor herself in a more steady stream of values and virtues that she could propagate to her followers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And this point why Bandita Ramabai rejected Brahmoism is actually quite key to this argument about how countering something like Brahmoism wasn't just based on theology, but it was also to help her in the long term and the great thing about this is that it proves her consistent character which we'll be discussing later in the episode as well. So coming out of the religious bubble now we see Pandita Ramabai get, gaining a name for herself she was becoming more well known in India so what was happening at this point once she'd established herself? Once she got the recognition as a highly learned person who could hold her own with a man, you know. Then the social reform circles in Calcutta started to take notice of her. And, and then she was lauded, she was feted, she was applauded. You know, she was, she was made one of them. Yeah. From then onwards, you know, the male social reformers started to take a lot of interest in her. By then, the British government had also heard about her. So she was asked by the Hunter Commission, which was the first education commission for uh, colonial India, uh, which had started to, uh, to survey a uh, lot of issues regarding 
the backwardness in Indian education and how to, you know, basically bring about progress. So this was the perfect opportunity to get her voice heard and to also shed light on the situation in India. Yes. So they interviewed her. She was um, interviewed and, you know, it's an amazing testimony where she talks about child marriage and how it has prevented women from learning. And, you know, she, she talked about how women have no access to medical care and how many women die because they have no access to medical care. So she said education is the first step and we need more native female teachers. We need, need more native female pra- medical practitioners. Uh, you know, so the, all this is happening in the 1880s and she's talking about it. Um, yeah. Then she comes back to Bombay. Once, Unfortunately, she lost her husband. Yeah, uh, to um, to cholera, I think. Okay. And then she had a child, Manorama Bai. She and Manorama both went back to Bombay, and in Bombay she met like-minded male social reformers who gave her support, and that's when she started her first school called Sharada Sadan. So she was now able to get her voice heard by other people, you know, outside of India and the Hunter Commission. But do you think she was criticizing the Hindu religion or Indian culture in general? I would say she was challenging Hinduism, but not Indian culture. The reason I say that is because she was such a learned Sanskrit scholar and she had Mm -hmm. read the original, the Vedas, she said that the original Vedas actually have some goodness in them. And she constantly talked about Vedic figures who were female learned figures. So she said that if you go back to the Vedas, women did have access to education. Women had choice in marriage. But somewhere along the line, all of this has been forgotten. Wow. And male priests have cooked up something and they're selling it to us as Hinduism. Mm. Uh, Even in the Haikas Hindu Hindu woman, the book, she constantly says that if you look at true Vedic culture, Women were given the rights to learning and to choice in marriage. So it was only later on, she says, it was corrupted by sages and priests. And she says, you know, um, I would say that uh, she was a patriot and nationalist also. She was very proud to be an Indian. Mm. She even attacked Christian missionaries who constantly said to her, especially the Anglican church, where she had come to study, you know, that, if you're a true Christian, then you should drop the Indian dress. You should drop the Indian diet. She said no. So throughout her life, she had the national costume, which is the sari. And throughout her life, she remained a vegetarian. Wow. And you know, this one of the things that is not, I think she's been misunderstood by her critics, I feel, yeah. mm-hmm. is that when she converted to Christianity, she did not adopt any particular denomination. Do you know how long the Anglican Church fought with her? For three years they fought with her on intellectual grounds that she should accept Protestantism. Okay. As opposed to Catholicism. She said, she had a brilliant answer, you know. She told them, do you know with, with what kind of great difficulty have unyoked myself from the hierarchy of Hinduism. Mm. Now you're asking me to be yoke myself to another one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, 
She said, I will remain a non-denominational Christian. Wow. And do you know the Anglican church was so angry with her, they dismissed her as a heretic. Wow. So this is why I say that Pandita Ramabai was a secular woman. Mm, right. At the bottom line, she was a secular woman. Her idea of equality was, she took it to its ultimate level. Liberty mm. meant liberty to do what you want, provided it is within a rational template. Provided yeah. that it is in an ethical template. So I think by showing her consistent nature and the fact that she wanted to, I guess you could say, gather her bearings first, it shows how she wanted to mentally prepare herself before she began helping others. So can we talk a bit more about her action-oriented programs? You know, why did she, why did she do them? Who were they for? And how do you perceive their success? I know I've packed a lot of questions in there, but I think we're going to get through it, okay? The British Empire had grown and they were ruling the high seas. And one of the problems was that how do they rule the, so many colonies without a strong military presence? Mm. So, but the, the problem was finances. They were stretched for finances. So they wouldn't allow British soldiers who served abroad to take their wives with them because it was a financial drain. But at the same time, because of these uh, Victorian stereotypes and fears of homosexuality, they wanted to keep the soldiers heterosexual. Okay, so they wanted to keep the soldiers heterosexual. They had oh, okay. strange ideas about the working British working classes being like so many animals and that they were given to venting their sexual passions. So they said, how do we deal with this? So they said, let's provide them with Indian prostitutes. Wow, talk about fighting for king and country. Oh. <laughs> it's a very strange arrangement wherein... Yeah. Wherever the army marched in India, you would see behind them a whole train of prostitutes marching with them oh. to service British soldiers. Now, a strange kind of service, but... Okay. Yeah, I know. So when Pratita Ramabai found out about it, she was most horrified, like a lot of Indian yeah. there at the time. And she started rescue missions for them. You know, so if a prostitute said that she didn't want to be a prostitute and that she had become one only because of poverty or whatever reason, you know, mm. uh, impoverishment, she would, she, you know, this is, this is again a unique character about her, but she cites Christianity. She says she could not find the virtue of compassion in Hinduism. She said the ancient Hindu text said that if you find a prostitute, you should throw her out of the village and let her be eaten by the village dogs. So she said, wow. you know, why? She said, in in UK, when, she, when sorry, in, uh, in Britain, she, she found that there were missionaries who were rehabilitating prostitutes because they said compassion was something that Christ had for everybody, no matter mm. how low they had sunk. So, you know, the yeah. first home for India, the rehabilitation of Indian prostitutes was opened by her. It is called Kripa Sadhan in 1890. Okay. And, and many other prostitutes who came here were those who had already become deceased, poor things, you know. Uh, that was right. another myth spread. They were, these prostitutes were servicing British soldiers and then they contracted lots of STD, you know, sexually transmitted diseases from the soldiers. 
and for many of which there was no cure. So it was people like Pandita Ramabai and her widow's home and her orphanages that looked after many of these women. Um, and this was a service that mm. Pandita Ramabai provided. In fact, there are four main organizations which are attributed to Pandita Ramabai. One is called the Arya Mahila Samaj in 1882, mm -hmm. which is purely a women's organization. Right. Then, then there was a Sharada Southern, which was the first school for high caste widows. Okay. Founded in Bombay in 1889. Then there was the Mukti Mission, which is still running. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, it's still running. And then, the isn't, it, isn't it like in? It's not just India; it's in like the US and stuff. Oh yeah, you know, Pandita Ramabai's fame spread so far. She has 65 Ramabai associations in the USA alone. Wow. Wow. And people were willing to fund her. And mm. so, you know, you find that there are four Mukti missions now in India. Uh, they're yeah. distributed in Maharashtra and Karnataka mainly. And also in the central provinces, Madhya Pradesh. That's really good. Yeah. How did she fund these programs? How did she get so much support? She should give lectures. Assume that there was a city that she went to. The mm. idea that she was coming was already spread by the newspapers of the time. Mm. And she'd have a huge gathering. And that's where she'd gather funds. Wow. You know, when she lectured. Mm. Um, that's and incredible. City to city lecturing and, and, and gathering funds for her. Eventually, you know, some of the non-denominational Christian associations in USA founded this Ramabai Association. Mm. They were both denominational and non-denominational. And, and they uh, guaranteed her an income of 10,000 US dollars per year uh, for her uh, organizations. But they had made a condition that, that she should have secular teaching in her school. Okay. And she was very happy to do that. But yeah. the Hindu male reformers in Pune and Bombay were so jealous of that, that, you know, they brought a lot of scandals and they mired her and they tried to wear her down. Especially, you must have heard of this famous nationalist figure called Bal Gangadhar Tilak, B.G. Tilak. Oh, yes, yeah. Now, Tilak really made her life miserable. Really? You know, by bringing accusations of, um, conversions in her schools, you know, um, and actually, what lay at the bottom of it is in the 1880s, the male social reformers were trying to open a high caste school for Hindu girls mm -hmm. themselves, which was not be which was not becoming successful. While mm -hmm. her schools were very successful, so yeah. by opening by letting loose these scandals, they took many of the girls from her schools into their schools. Yeah. So again, it is politics. Yeah. Politics played by male social reformers. So what I know about Dilak is uh, is him in the political spectrum. So interestingly, he was actually against some of the practices like Sati. And he was part of a triumvirate with two other politicians. It was um, with Lala Lajpat Rai and Bipin Chandra Pal. The reason I'm mentioning all three is because I forget who said it out of the three, but I'm fairly sure it was Dilak. He made an interesting comment in one of his writings about passing laws in India during the British Raj period. So he said that if if a British or an English person wanted to pass a law, 
because they disagreed with a practice like sati, for example, it would be harder to enforce it in India because they were seen as outsiders and they didn't understand the culture and the intricate practices of something like sati. But if an Indian wanted to get rid of something like that, then it would be easier because they're because they're native and they understand the culture a lot better than and than an outsider. So so it just I don't know, maybe maybe he also saw her as an outsider because she converted, because all of a sudden the yeah. understanding goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think most of the hostility that Pandita Ramabai faced from Indian um sections of society was mm-hmm. the fact that she converted yeah because you see unfortunately christianity comes or rather christianity becomes a religion to be reckoned with in the 19th century but it comes with a tag of imperialism it's an imperial right. religion right yeah people are unwilling to disassociate the two mm. you know but it was not like that at all yeah. she had come to it, hers was a gendered understanding of religion, mm. you know, that this religion doesn't treat women and low caste properly. So I'm going to seek another religion which will give me, as a woman, I have the right to salvation. You know, if Hinduism is saying Indian uh, women have to be reborn a man in order to get moksha, why would an Indian woman be a Hindu? Yeah. And now I think is the perfect time to pause. So I know there's a lot of information to take in so far. We've touched more upon what Pandita Ramabai had to do for herself before she began to help other people. I think that when we look at historical figures, we tend to ignore their their own um, their independent mentality, which is one of the most important features, really. And instead of looking at these historical figures with these rose-tinted glasses, it's important to look at them as people, first of all, because they didn't start off as heroes. But we haven't even scratched the surface yet. So I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for listening to part one. And if you're still interested, because we still need to talk about uh, missionary work and also Padma's reasons for why she thinks um, Bandita Ramabai should be on the rupee note. But I digress. I won't hold you against your will. So if you are still joining us, then just continue on to part two and I'll add my disclaimer now because the first couple of questions concern these darker themes that I I warned you about in the introduction. Um, Otherwise, if you aren't joining us, then thank you for listening and and I hope you're still interested in the power of Bessa. But keep an eye out for the bonus content episode, which is more content with Dr. Padma Anagol and uh, I'm looking forward to releasing that. So I guess it's time for me to say Asian Crew out.